I'm Mackenzie Roller, and this is Voices of Change for Change. Community service has been a part of who I am for as long as I can remember. As early as elementary school, I was finding ways to serve those around me and get involved, whether it was through student council or school events. This developed into me joining with five of my classmates in middle school to form an annual collection drive. We took the title One for Everyone, based on our goal of donating necessary household items to our surrounding community. We collected over 1,000 items annually to give to those in need for five consecutive years. We connected with different local nonprofits to donate our items. They operated with the goal of helping the community take care of basic needs. Each had a slightly different method of providing that service. The 18,000 nonprofits in Connecticut generated just under $37 billion in revenue in 2016. This is according to the Independent Sector, which is a coalition of nonprofits, foundations, and corporate giving programs. 2.58% of household income was donated to charity in Connecticut. This is all within the small state of 3.5 million people. At the time of my collection drives, I did not know any of these statistics. But I also thought nothing of the fact that there were so many organizations working to help solve the same problem. I simply appreciated and admired the time and effort these organizations put into helping their community. However, if that $37 billion is being split between so many nonprofits, how much impact is each of those organizations able to create? What would happen if all of these organizations came together to reach their goals? whether that is reducing the rate of homelessness or providing food to those who need it. Why does the nonprofit sector essentially split resources between so many organizations with the same end goal? Is this really the most effective model? Welcome back to Voices of Change for Change. I'm Mackenzie Roller. I'm a senior at Miss Porter School in Farmington, Connecticut. This podcast is the culmination of my senior capstone project working to answer the question, how can we create effective social change? Lindroth has committed her life to understanding how social change can work most effectively, specifically within the nonprofit sector. I met her at an alumni event at Miss Porter's last fall. Her energy was almost tangible, and passion radiated off of her. She could have told everyone in the group to fly to the moon, and we would have listened. Kat shared her story with us describing how she co-founded and leads the organization Social Contract, which looks to help philanthropists, government, and community organizations improve how they approach social change. 
Her background, working with Teach for America and founding the nonprofit Summer Learning Collaborative, which now provides summer educational opportunities to over 2,000 low-income youth in Delaware, gives her a unique perspective and incredible experience when approaching her organization's goals. Through her work, she has developed a critical eye for the way that our social change system operates and is working to find ways to really, truly move the needle on the issues that our world faces. Kat and I spoke on the phone earlier this semester. She started with her explanation of why the work that she does is so necessary in our current society. In today's world, the current way that we organize ourselves in communities to solve very complex social problems is fundamentally flawed. We finance things in one-year increments. Folks are in silos. People are working on a variety of different strategies, none of which are sort of hierarchically ordered in terms of priority in a community. So it's just kind of a mess if you think about it. Kat then shifted to speak about some of the ways Social Contract has attempted to combat these challenges. So what we do is help align the existing community on like what they believe the highest value strategies are that are needed. So we have to have some constraints and we have to prioritize. And we listen to a lot of national data that helps us kind of understand what the highest and best use strategies are. And, and then we get everyone on the same page, which is hard work. <laughs> but we, we try to get everyone on the same page to say, look, this is what it's really going to take to move the needle on this issue. And so we really are advocates for consensus-built strategies. That's kind of our thing. And um, we really believe in collaborative funding and funding strategies with Fidelity. So that's kind of what I do is lead those movements. I, I work with a lot of great, cool young leaders to help them build their movements in a collaborative and equitable way. So you spoke about it a little bit there, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit why you believe our current social change model exists as it does, where like there's a whole bunch of groups working for the same thing and funding gets split. And like, why is that the way it is? Because it seems that you believe that's not the most effective way to do things. And so if you could speak a little bit about why you think that that's the model that we use right now. Like, I think a root cause comes down to two things. One is the financing it would be virtually impossible to move the needle on a specific issue if we continue to finance the nonprofit sector in the way that we do. Virtually impossible. If foundations and corporations and the government continue to not be on the same page about what needs to be financed, we're not able to use dollars to progress. Instead, we're just throwing dollars into a bucket. This happens all the time. And then what you get is that people who are in the community are like, why is this problem not being solved? Like, why hasn't education been fixed? And why is gun violence still rampant? And so then they start their own nonprofits and the whole cycle continues. And the issue too, is that when you wrap in this, the second part of this problem set, which is the issue with policy, and this is a real interesting one, because what's often happening is these nonprofits are forming to mitigate problems caused by policy. And what's fascinating is foundations don't want to fund advocacy. They don't want to fund organizing efforts. It's just distasteful. You know, they're like, let's just fund an after-school program instead. 
well, you know what's sustainable? Funding the organizer that actually changes the policy that makes it so that that program is funded through the state. I'll give you a perfect example. I used to run something called the Summer Learning Collaborative, and this was a collective impact coalition that then became a nonprofit and formalized. And what we did was advocate for and fundraise for resources that would improve the uh, community center's ability to serve kids in out-of-school time. One of the things that we noticed when we were in that space was there's this thing called purchase of care. And, and purchase of care only subsidizes kids to be able to go to these programs until the age of 13. And this just so happens to be the moment in time when they need support the most. Name me a 13-year-old that doesn't need programming to go to to direct them towards a higher self-esteem and self-knowledge and growth and development. So it's, it's, it's just crazy to me that we would invest for so long in children just to let them drop off a cliff. And yet, you know, we're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on programming, like little band-aids, when we could just change the policy. You know, let them stay, let them stay in those programs until they're 16 when they can work and get a job. Why are we not changing that policy? Because there are very few people like me that know about these things because it takes someone who's had time in the space working in the sector for a while to know about it. And then the problem is these people who do know about it are so overly encumbered, right, in doing the work and keeping their nonprofit alive and fundraising and doing the rat race that they don't actually have the time to advocate against the policy change. So it all comes through a full circle and it just makes for a stupendously problematic issue um, that is going to be this generation's issue to solve. So if we continue to create all of these nonprofits, I mean, you're someone who's worked to create a nonprofit. How do we change the the norm so that it's more common for people who are all pushing for the same change and the same cause to like work together in one group? Like, Why are we not able to do that now and how would we get to that point? Communities are going to have to be intentional about building processes that enable this. Right now, funders, they're like, oh, how can we inspire collaboration? They actually point their fingers at the nonprofits and they'll be like, why are the nonprofits not collaborating? And it's like, no, actually, when 45% of our time is spent fundraising because of a system that's broken, we are completely unable to stop, to think, to reassess to shift gears. It's very hard to collaborate, number one. Number two, when you think about corporations that are able to be agile and shift and like really do innovative collaborative work, they have these R&D departments, you know, research and development departments. That does not exist in the nonprofit sector. It's not like you have the ability for nonprofits to come together and just think for a while. What funders like to fund are like, my dollar equals this widget and that this happens. Now, here's the other fun thing about that. Funders, oftentimes, they only want to continue to fund the innovation that organizations are saying they're doing. So what often ends up happening is nonprofits will pitch what they're doing to a funder to sound like it's R&D and innovation work, (laughs) but it's actually like money that they're desperate for to keep their general operations alive. And now they have to do the general operations plus the new thing without the resources. So if that's the problem, right, like how, how do we get over this? Um, and this is something that social contracts really wants to develop. The model that we are playing with is one that enables organizations in a community 
to apply with a tacit interest in exploring collaboration. And what we'd be able to do if they applied was A, like match them with others that are potentially synchronous. And what we're recommending is that you create an environment where it feels safe, like you have to take the financial pressures off. So we have to promise that actually like the salaries of the people that are in the organizations that we're working with are supported. And then two, there has to be a really masterful facilitation process that works with the boards of each of these different organizations. Ultimately, you know, what we need to be able to do is convince, you know, folks to merge and, and, that, and create the financial incentives for them to merge that feels good for everyone. The bad news is, you know, ego may be what we see gets in the way. Right. My next question, too, would be you keep using the word advocacy, and I would love if you could define that and then also what's the difference between advocacy and activism and how do they interact with each other? Oh, that's an interesting question. So when I use the word advocacy, I'm talking about trying to mobilize a voter base and influence at all levels to try to change policy to stand up to something. Now, the difference between advocacy and activism, I could say activism would feel to me like I am verbally for it. So I'm going to like wear the t-shirt and like show up at the event, you know, raise my fist. You know, so I think you could be like an activist by just getting people hyped up and angry in terms of creating social change and like a shift in the way that people interact, do you need advocacy and activism? And is one more important than the other? I think it's both, but I also think that we have to change the way that we're doing activism. Right now we are creating further divisiveness. What we need to understand is if we are willing to point our finger at another and say they're wrong, we also have to understand that we're equally wrong. That's the one thing that you need to understand is like your ego is always going to tell you that you're right and you're most likely wrong. And, and that's really, really hard right now because I know, you know, those of us on like the liberal band of things really want to believe, you know, everyone else uh, on the other side of this country it doesn't understand what's going on. But, you know, it, it's highly likely that there's more of a nuanced view there than like they're all terrible and we're all good. And so we're going to have to fully understand and learn ways of respecting each other and talking to each other that allow us the chance to talk and and have a real conversation about the future of the country and about values. It's okay for people to have different values. You know, it, it is. It's a question of whether or not the way we live out those values allows us to be a functioning society. And so we need to have a conversation about whether we can be a society anymore. But let's have a conversation about it in a way that's respectful and respects the other side as having some sort of belief system that we can try to respect and understand. I think what's scary is right now in a time where we're like, go, 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 go. And we're moving so fast. What we need to be doing is sitting with each other and like having some deep conversations. So if activism can take that form, right? Like if we can start to be like, let's talk, 
that could be like the new form of activism. Yeah, um, I would consider that civil discourse and civil discourse does not exist right now in this country. Like people are so polarized right now and so unwilling to listen to the other side of anything. How do you even get those people to sit down together and reach a place where they're actually respecting the other's opinion? So here's what I know. I know that you need to create dialogue in ways where there are norms and, and people feel like they're respected, which means there should always be a facilitator of conversation. You know, a facilitator's job is to make sure that things feel fair and that people are heard. I find that starting with the North Star is really important. And when I say North Star, I mean we need to start with what it is we want the world to look and feel like at the end of the day. And, and I will tell you, a lot of people don't disagree on the end goal here. I start with this, this question of like, what freedoms do you think that everyone deserves to have? I use this thing called the veil of ignorance, which is John Rawls, who basically says a just society is only one that you know is just if you would enter it, not knowing if you'd be rich or poor. And when I push people on that, I'm like, yeah, but like, would you enter this society? Like what entitlements would you need to know you had in order to know that you were going to walk into this society? And when people are thinking in their self-interest, right, they're pretty much on the same page. Um, they're like, I think everyone should have freedom of speech and have freedom to believe in what they want to believe in and freedom to pursue their dreams. People generally believe that people should be free to do what they want because they're primarily self-interested. And then if you take that a step further, and you acknowledge in our current society, we say that these freedoms exist, but they don't. They all acknowledge that. If you can like bring someone through a thought progression with their own self-interest in mind, sometimes you can kind of get people to shift gears and shift their thinking. And then you can start to look at solutions. I think my answer to your question about how you bridge these chasms, I think Start with the end in mind and fundamentally believe that people can share the 100,000 foot view and do share the 100,000 foot view and know that it's their personal experiences that are diverse and different that have shaped the fact that they think that there's a lot of different ways to get to that 100,000 foot view. And I think that the key is getting them to agree on just like, what's the one step in front of you that you can take together that you can all agree is one step forward. And then if you can take enough steps forward together, then they can start seeing the world through the same lens, which allows them to start moving faster. So it's like, go slow to go fast. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what's been the most impactful or rewarding moment for you in your time working for social change? Mm. To be honest, it's like the work I do every day. I love what I do every single day. I get to create the path forward where people get to believe in the world they want to believe in. I get to excite people's electrons. And in that excited state, new things can form and new realities can happen. And I get to be that. And, and I, I just love those moments. And the interesting thing that I think our generation, you know, this kind of feminine generation, <laughs> you know, female leadership, disruptive generation, this, this human heartfelt planet generation, we are going to bring this excitable state. And that happens with emotion. We drive change with emotion. How you make people feel is everything. 
I love the moments where I leave a room and I realize that I have changed how people feel and that they come up to me and they just say like, I feel so inspired. I feel like something can change now. The moment that that comes to me right now is that I got to spend some time in Seychelles, which is an archipelago nation off the coast of Africa. And I got to work on a project about student motivation and engagement. And so obviously the first thing that we did was we talked to the kids and we created this extraordinary series of conversations. When you create the conditions where youth and adults get to work together to like solve new problems and they're seeing each other and they're understanding each other now and they didn't before and they're seeing each other as humans. And I don't know, I just left that day like nearly in tears because of just the emotion. This, this the, a sheer emotion of, of energy of people that you could feel in the room, of kids, of hope, of, of a new day, of something that's on the horizon that's exciting people. And that, that moment just is like, I left and uh, Seychelles just like, I'm 100% in my flow. Like I'm 100% what, what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I just need to be doing this all over the world every week, all the time. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool that you get to do that every day. <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah. <laughs> but Um, There's a quote from you in an article in the Delaware Business Times. You say empowering young people to dream big and cultivate a sense of agency is a priority. And if you had the chance to speak to all of the young activists who are so passionate about the changes they want to see in the world, what advice would you give to them as to how to make that change? Oh my God, I love you for asking me this question. Adults have a very real role to play in supporting social change. It is not designing the solution. I think in many ways it's unlocking the imaginative power and the agency of young people. And so it's extremely important that youth understand that there are far more the people that need to be solving the problems. So my advice then to to those young people who may be listening are that first, I need you to turn on your emotional receptors. So much of our lives are spent moving from one sports practice to another and one class to another, but we, we are moving and, and we're not feeling, you know, feeling the things that we care about, recognizing the things that we think about, really listening to the thoughts that, that hurt us or make us pause or wonder about the world. And so my first piece of advice is to really open up your emotional receptors to the things that are making you feel that's unjust, that that's not right. There's a series of questions that I would encourage them to think about. One, what does the world need? Two, what are you good at? You know, what are you strongest at? What is your unique, incredible asset, your superpower? And then three, what would you do if you were completely unreasonable? When you think about what the world needs and when you think about what you being a superhero, like what would you do if you were totally unreasonable about what your parents think or what society thinks? And I want you to really get that glimpse of what that is, because that may very well be the glimpse of what you're meant to be on earth to do. And then I think as you start to get clear on what it is that you care about, challenge yourself to start to take action. And that action can look like researching folks who have already done that work that's out there. Go find elders in these communities who have cared about this for a long time and have done some learning, but don't just listen for what they tell you to do. 
you know, maybe step in, volunteer, get your foot in, start to learn, but then form your own opinions and start to take action. And what I always recommend is write it down, write it in a way where it says, this is what I want to be true. This is what I've learned. This is what I understand the current state to be. This is what I think needs to happen. And this is where I think I could start to make that happen. And then you need to go and have the courage to sit down with your principal or your superintendent or the head of that nonprofit or whomever it might be. And you need to say, hey, look, I see this issue. I see this problem. I would really like to maybe try to tackle it like this. Do you think that I could spend some time working on that? You know, nine out of 10 times, they're going to say yes. Listen to that set of questions one more time. One, what does the world need? Two, what is your superpower? Three, what would you do if you were completely unreasonable? What would you do if you were completely unreasonable? I would restructure the entire education system to make it truly accessible to all youth and make it a system that teaches students to learn about themselves, follow their passions, and do what they are good at in the world. Remember, nothing is impossible. Keep imagining, as Niall Fort called it, that alternate vision for the world and hold tight to it. Kat Lindroth is currently a co-founder and leader of Social Contract. This episode was written and produced by me, Mackenzie Roller, with editing help from Ali Oshinsky. The music is by Sound of Picture. Special thanks to Sophie Paris, the Global Studies cohort, my family, and the rest of the Capstone students. Next time on Voices of Change for Change, I will speak with Vanessa Rubble, former co-head of the Women's March on Washington and current founder and leader of March On. Someone who opened her emotional receptors and is working to create the future she envisions. We take a critical look at how social change movements are created and how we can do it better. This is Voices of Change for Change. I'm Mackenzie Roller. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.